Resurrection by Cassie Sirikas, Part 1 We are only all back at the house because our mother is dead. Even so, I'm surprised. Of course, it would take a death to bring us all back together in the same town under one roof. Whose death I imagined, I do not know. Certainly not our mother's quick descent into darkness, her body packed tightly into the soil like a flower pressed into the pages of a book. She insisted on being buried on the property where we grew up. She did not want to be buried in the graveyard in town, nor did she long to be cremated, her ashes settling like dirty snow on top of the lake. No, it had to be a box, a heavy wooden coffin, and she wanted to be buried underneath the oak tree, which you can see from the kitchen window. It's a monstrous tree with branches as gnarled as an arthritic's hands. Even in storms, the branches barely move, the leaves fluttering back and forth. I'm a little surprised that my mother wanted to be buried under something so formidable, so permanently tied to earth. Ever since that summer, she's been little more than a ghost to us, a candle flickering on the edge of its life. At first, the change in her a shift in gravity, so monstrous that it knocked us all out of orbit, her little planets, seemed to be temporary. Surely she'd come back to us. A season of mourning, perhaps, who could blame her? After the summer chilled, she'd draw us closer to her by the fireplace in the evenings. We'd gather sticks and roast marshmallows over the flames like we did every autumn. But she didn't come back to us by the harvest moon. She wrapped herself in a slow grief, like a heavy blanket, and slowly rocked back and forth in the rocking chair that our father had carved for her. Ivy curved around the legs and up the back of the chair, catching the light of the fire. I'd stand next to her sometimes and trace the grooves of the leaves with my fingers, while my Isabel and Julia sat at her feet. There were a lot of quiet nights spent like that, the four of us sitting next to the fire. Often, Julia would go into her own world, the one that Violet occupied with her before the accident. She spread her four china dolls around her and played house. Each of us sisters were given a china doll on our sixth birthday, and by now, the rest of us had outgrown them, leaving Julia with not one, but four dolls to play with. When Isabel and I were younger, we'd spend hours in the woods with our dolls, Natalie and Juniper. We built tree houses out of the heavy pine branches that littered the forest, sprawling out in them to make small pieces of furniture for the dolls. From smaller branches that we found, we created a kitchen table and two chairs and two beds. We used moss as blankets and pillows. Natalie and Jupiter, in their flouncy white gowns, would sleep in the treehouse as we hunted for walnut shells, tossed aside by squirrels who only cared about the nuts inside. These were the most important piece of the doll's house, because the shells were where they made their potions. Isabel crushed wild strawberries into a congealed pink mess and plopped it into the walnut shells. I'd sprinkled dandelion fluff and broken pine needles on top, murmuring under my breath as I'd seen Mother do it in our own person-sized kitchen. She'd never hidden this part of herself from us, but always shook her head no when we asked to help her, or to see the tattered black book that she kept with her at all times in her apron pocket. I'd seen her scribbling in it before, 
But there were also different symbols in there that I'd never seen, different languages that I couldn't even begin to decipher. Isabel went hunting for the book on many occasions when Mother went out to town. She craned her neck to see in the kitchen eaves, stand on the table, and run her hands along the tops of the beams. I'd watch her and tell her to stop, but she never did. She'd always ask me to help her, ask why I wasn't curious too. I'd tell her that I was, but I didn't want to snoop. It didn't feel right. It turned my stomach to see her rifling through my mother's room, her fingers brushing through the gray and green dresses in the armoire like our mother was on trial for something. She never found anything but dust and a rogue coin here and there, which she pocketed. Either mother took the black book with her every time she went to town, hidden somewhere on her person, or she had a rather fantastic hiding spot in the house that not even Isabel could uncover. Gradually, our mother promised us that we would be able to read the book someday. Isabel clung to these words, often starting the breakfast conversation by questioning if this was the day that mother would let us read the book, which would teach us what she did in the kitchen with the herbs that she grew in the garden, with the fragile blue eggshells that I found under the oak tree every so often. Of course, I wanted to know too, but I sensed that mother grew slightly nervous every time that Isabel brought it up. It's not play, she said one spring morning while we sat at the kitchen table. The daffodils were in their fullest, shocking yellow bloom on the, on the hills. It's hard work and dangerous what I do. What is it that you do, mother? Kicking her legs back and forth, pushing scrambled eggs around her plate, Isabel gave off frantic energy, the kind that increasingly tired me. I said it before I even knew that I was going to speak. Magic. She does magic. Clever girl. Mother beamed at me, then took my hand and Isabel's. We were seven and eight at the time, and I flushed at being the one to get it right. Even though I was the oldest, Isabel seemed more mature than me, more sure about herself. Because of that, she was usually the first to speak and usually got it right. Isabel's mouth gaped at that. Truly? Mother laughed and squeezed our hands. Looking back on this memory, I see that she glowed. And that is what I mean. She glowed, ethereal beams sweeping over her body like a smoky haze. It was like she showed herself to us for the very first time that morning, like she had sighed and let an old skin fall to the floor. Here was our mother, magical. At first, this revelation fascinated Isabel. She followed mother around for weeks, chattering, watching her every move. Chores that normally caused Isabel to grumble and roll her eyes now became a pleasure. She made her bed before breakfast each morning, tucking the sheets in, even though she usually never did that. Her quilt would hide the wrinkled sheets. I often watched her as I made my own bed, with sheets tucked in tight, even the side next to the dark wood wall. I didn't understand why anyone would want to sleep with the sheets tossed every which way. She set the table for dinner each night, without prompting from our mother, and she brought in the speckled eggs from our chickens, Lucy and Bones, every morning for breakfast. Mist clung to the fields as she traipsed to the chicken coop, barely after the rooster crowed. She wanted mother to teach her everything, and she was doing it the way she thought would please our mother the most, 
obedience, and help around the house. Of course, that greatly helped Mother, who, looking back, should have been absolutely swallowed by all of her responsibilities around our little house on the edge of the woods. She had four daughters aged eight and under, me, the eldest at eight, Isabel, just under a year after me at seven. There was a few years break, and then Violet arrived two years after Isabel. Finally, Julia, everyone's favorite, because she let us carry her around like a doll and pamper on her, even though she was almost too big for us to carry around anymore at a gangly aged three. Julia was our anchor, something to dote on when we were frustrated with each other or ourselves. I remember a tiny, insidious part of my heart feeling relief that it was Violet who drowned in the lake that summer and not Julia. Without her, the rest of us sisters would have been as listless as Mother was after the accident. We would not have been able to care for our mother, who was still a presence in her bed for two months after the accident. A stone in our house, cold granite, absorbing the heat of our blood and the tears in our eyes. Roots grew underneath her door and spread down the hall, traveling down the staircase and wrapping around our hearts. We were too young for this responsibility. We mourned our sister and tried to give mother space, but at the same time, we needed her. Since it wasn't September yet, our teachers were not aware of what happened. We kept to ourselves, only venturing to the village for things that we couldn't grow in the earth. Usually, mother made the trip about once a month. She had just gone days before Violet drowned in mid-July. August's time for her village trip came and went. I tried to go, but Isabel stopped me, her hand squeezing my arm as I laced up my shoes by the front door. I looked up. Her eyes flashed, and I noticed for the first time how wild her hair had gotten in the past month. The only redhead out of us, and the only one with curls. It stood straight off her head like the time she grabbed Mr. Nell's electric fence on a dare. You can't go, Mary, she said. We need flour and salt. I stood up, Isabel still gripping my arm. People will ask about mother. I knew what she really meant, that people would ask about mother and that I'd not be able to lie. I wouldn't be able to simply say, Oh, she's feeling ill today and asked me to fetch some things. I wouldn't be able to laugh at Mr. Donahue's jokes while he measured the flour, which we only knew about because Mother would repeat the jokes to us as she cut biscuits with that same flour hours later. When the longest night neared, Mother told me to fetch the piece of log that was left over from last year and keep it on the mantel. I then hauled in a log from out back from the pile that Mother had chopped the previous autumn. Julia draped leaves and dried flowers on the log, while Isabel heated up cider on the stove. When evening came, the four of us gathered around the fireplace, as usual. The candles that Mother had lit earlier dripped wax on the windowsills. Isabel's red curls frizzed from being near the stove. The little room felt stifling, even though we hadn't yet lit the log. There were the four of us, when there should have been five. Mother cleared her throat and bent forward to touch the log. She explained, as she did at every winter solstice, how this night was the longest of the year, how our ancestors started this tradition to honor the sun's rebirth, the coming of more light and less darkness. Usually Mother's words spun gold in our ears, 
but this year they dropped like lead. The wonder was lost. Her hands trembled as she sprinkled flour onto the yule log. Isabel took her arm and led her back to the rocking chair, where she sat, tears streaming down her face. I wanted nothing more than to leave the house at that moment, to burst out screaming. But of course I didn't. Of course I stayed silent. As the oldest, I needed to keep Julia and Isabel in check, and my mother fed. Isabel was next in line, but she had the sense of a rabbit. Still, she calmed my mother down. She whispered something in her ear that stretched Mother's mouth into a half-smile. Then Isabel looked at me, and I nodded. We needed to finish the ritual. Isabel picked up the pot of steaming cider and slowly poured it over the powdered log. The smell of apples, of cinnamon and clove, mixed with the evergreen from Julia, made the stifling room a little more bearable. Julia reached up to grab the bit of log from last year and handed it to me. I solemn. Although it was small, the wood was the heaviest thing I'd ever held. No one had ever set the log on fire but Mother, and it was obvious to everyone that she wasn't up for the task. I looked at her then, crumpled in her chair, but she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at nothing, or perhaps the ghost of Violet was in the room with us, and only she could see her. Without speaking, I struck a match, lit the wood on fire, and touched the yule log, soaked in cider and flour. The flame caught easily, lighting the night on fire, taking the shadows of ghosts with it. The first thing that I saw when I pull up in the driveway are piles and piles of suitcases. Old-fashioned black steamer trunks, the kind that makes you think of Ellis Island or Titanic, litters the top of the drive, spread like a haphazard maze. There's a clear path of direction. A robin's egg blue Chevy has its doors wide open, and there's a path of trunks leading to the front steps of the porch. I did not think that Isabel would beat me here. I was expecting a few hours at least with only Julia, sitting at the kitchen table with cups of tea, maybe even walking to the edge of the woods and back to clear my head. But no, she cannot afford to give me even a moment's peace in our childhood home before sweeping in and ruining everything. Seeing her trunks scattered about as if she owns the place and her gleaming car in the sunlight is all too much at once. I have not seen Isabel in seven years, not since Julia's graduation. Even then, we only spoke to each other when it was necessary, and Mother was smart enough to keep us apart during the ceremony itself. She sat between us and didn't comment on the fact that we both kept up conversations with her, but not each other. Mother did not comment on this duality, the separateness of her two oldest girls, one with fiery red hair and the other so black it seemed to absorb light. Isabel was the sun, and I was the moon, and Mother was the earth that gave us a purpose. We had always worshipped her, but before we did it together, in harmony, two pale-skinned sisters with intertwining fates and hearts running side by side in the woods to fetch mushrooms or moss for my mother's concoctions. 
Never again will it be like that. Our mother is dead, and our hearts fell out of tune years before. I thought that the longer the time passed, the easier it would be to see my sisters. Julia and I had never fought, not beyond anything usual, but I still have not seen her in about two years. We talk on the phone about once a month when I check in on our mother. She always hands the phone to Julia at the end of our conversation. I can see her sitting in the old velvet chair next to the phone, twirling its cord around her fingers. Julia hovering at the edge of the sitting room, pretending like she's just waiting to talk to me, but really making sure that mother doesn't stand up too fast or lose her balance. Perpetually ready to take flight, rocking on her heels, wary. That is Julia. I sit in my car for a few moments, with the ignition still running. It's October, but it's still hot as the devil's asshole outside. There are no trees at the top of the driveway, not close enough to provide any shade. The sky is cloudless and as blue as Isabel's car, which just puts my used Honda Accord to shame. I usually don't care about things like this, appearances, or showing off. But then again, I'm not usually around my sister. Pulling down the sun visor, I take a quick glance at my hair before going into the house. Hair black as ever, cut into the same bob that I've been wearing for years. My cheeks flush with the heat. And despite blasting the AC, my shirt clings to me like a used tissue. Georgia's sun is relentless, even in October. I pull out the deodorant stick that I keep in my purse and swipe my underarms. The scent, lavender and sage, usually subtle, seems intensified. Everything is intensified. The color of Isabel's car, the weeds shooting out of the garden to my left, my own pounding heart. I turn off the ignition and grip my keys and purse tight as I get out of the car. Instantly, I feel the sun beating down on me. It only seems bad because I haven't been this far south in about two years. How many summer days did I spend out on this very land, sweaty and laughing, and not once curse the sun? Slinging my duffel bag across my shoulder, I walk around Isabel's trunks and up the porch steps. It's obvious that Julia at some point in the past few days, attempted to straighten up. Dust and spiderwebs cleared, floorboards mopped. Even the porch ceiling somehow looks fresh and new, even though I know it's the same coat of haint blue that Mother painted when she first moved into the house. It's a stark contrast to the wilderness just beyond the porch steps. Bushes that haven't been trimmed in months. Yellow and orange chrysanthemums, open and cheerful, despite weeds their height beside them. I wonder if she's cleaned the inside for us, or if we'll need to do that. But before I can knock on the door, it swings open, a blast of cool air swooshing to meet me. And there to greet me is the sun to my moon, the only person that could make me cry from laughter and grief in the same second. Mary, says Isabel her right eyebrow arched so that it's almost lost in her hair, which is a cascade of smooth garnet waves and not the carefree ringlets of our childhood. We saw you pull up and thought that the Haints must have stole you away. It took you so long to get to the porch. Mary, are you having a stroke? My mouth opens, but no sound comes out. I've instinctively reached out to Isabel's face, and she's shooting daggers at me with her golden eyes. It's not out of fondness 
nor a fit of grief that my fingers brush her face. My sister stands before me with the blackest eye that I've ever seen. Bruises of green, gray, and purple bloom around her right eye. She's tried to cover it with foundation, but it's only made it more ghastly. That looks painful, I say, finally, the air coming out of my lungs not quite right. Is that your idea of hello? Isabel's got her fake voice on, reserved for strangers and teachers, too high and chipper. I've never heard her use it with me before. She holds the door open for me. I smell her perfume as I pass. Chantilly, a mix of patchouli and roses. It's what her side of our bedroom perpetually smelled like as teenagers until she moved across the hall into her own space. Hello, I reply, unless Isabel has changed in a fundamental way, and I know that she hasn't. It's no use mentioning her black eye. She won't talk of it until she brings it up. I'll ask Julia tonight what happened to her when Isabel has flounced off to her room. Julia and I are the night owls in this family. Everything looks the same and yet different. Bigger, somehow, which is strange to me. Isn't your childhood supposed to be smaller than you remember? The garden not as vast as the one that you keep in your memories and turn over in your mind when you can't sleep at night? See, there's where the strawberry patch started and the turnips and carrots a few rows down. How many rows for potatoes? Was it two or three? Julia's in the kitchen. Isabel brushes past me, Chantilly sticking in my throat like a dream. I stand in the hallway for a minute to catch my breath. Wooden floors covered by the same flower-patterned rug that was probably here long before Mother inherited the house. Dark brown wooden staircase to my right, the banister dusty. There were several bouquets of flowers, from who I couldn't imagine. White stargazer lilies and pink carnations, mostly. Dark crimson roses, a popular sympathy flower, it seems, took over the parlor as I stepped into it. It also looked exactly the same. The velvety walls were almost the exact same shade as the roses. The fireplace mantle littered with mementos and black and white pictures of family long dead. It's as if I stepped into a Victorian parlor of several generations past. Heavy gray curtains blocking out the sun. Furniture that looked about as comfortable as it actually was. It took me until I went to school to realize that we lived in an abnormal house. It's like the house was a bee frozen in amber, frozen in a time that none of us were alive to witness. None of the furniture was ours, or at least not originally. Mother was not big on buying new things or rearranging, so when she inherited the house after her parents died, it looked the same as she did when she grew up until she died. Instead of stifling me, I find the thought strangely comforting. Isabel often complained growing up that the house suffocated her. Before that summer, I tried to empathize with her. She always wanted things to be fresh and different. Odd, then, that she's kept the same perfume all of these years. I step out of the parlor and continue down the hall into the kitchen. There's a room in between the parlor and the kitchen, which used to be a gentleman's smoking room, according to our mother. Dark green velvety walls, a desk, and chairs clustered around the fireplace. 
Even though no one had smoked in that room since before I was born, the air was always hazy, the furniture smelling faintly of tobacco. The door is shut to that room, so I don't bother opening it. The parlor doesn't have a door, and my mother explained to us when we were younger that's because the space was for women, and women didn't have any privacy back in the Victorian era when the house was built. I find myself running my left hand along the wall as I walk the last few steps to the kitchen. Isabel's at the stove, boiling water for tea. Something delicious smelling swaths from the oven. A funeral casserole that a well-meaning neighbor dropped by, no doubt. And I drop my bag immediately as Julia launches herself at me. Mary! Julia's a flurry of light brown hair and a long patchy shawl that I recognize as our mother's. She flings her arms around me and I smile. Hi, Jules. This is all you brought? Julia looks at my duffel bag. I thought you were staying for a week at least. Isabel stops messing about the stove and turns to look at us. Is she staying too? I thought it would be just the two of us, darling. No, don't worry. I say as I sit down on the bench at the table next to Julia's mug and a bundle of papers. I'm just here for two nights. But we haven't all been together in this house for, God, I don't know, 10 years at least. Julia plops down next to me, scattering the paper mound across the table. It's the same table, of course, that's always been there. Oak, sturdy and worn. This table was never used by my mother's family. It was the servant's table. I run my fingers over the grooves in the wood, the sensation as familiar to me as my own face in a mirror. Even the presence of Isabel cannot stop me from feeling like I'm at home, although I know that sensation will wear off quickly. Twelve years, darling. Isabel turns back to the stove and stirs in the tea bags into the boiling water. It's been since Mary's high school graduation. Although I know that graduation is a significant event, it's still surprising to me that Isabel knows the exact amount of years off the top of her head. It's like she's been counting down how many years she's not had to sleep across the hall from me, both here in the summer and at school, once we were old enough to go to the boarding school up in the mountains. Julia's hand creeps across the table and rests gently on top of mine. I had forgotten that Julia is our hugger our toucher of the family. Mother used to say it was because we all mothered her, all of us girls, and Julia never grew up properly as a result. I let her squeeze my hand. I turned to look at Julia, her hair still in a messy cloud around her head. She's paler than I'd last seen her. Dark circles make her eyes look like enormous blue orbs. I can only take a few days off, Jules. She nods, biting her lip. I don't say what's obvious. Isabel is staying here. We can't both be here together for more than a few days. Sometimes I wonder if Julia properly remembers a time when Isabel and I weren't at odds with each other. Sometimes I can barely remember myself. She was only 10 when it all happened between us that summer, 15 years ago. I'm glad to see you, though, I say, and Julia smiles, though there's no light in her eyes. I'm glad you're here, both of you, she says. It's been awful without Mother, 
so quiet and yet so loud at the same time. The silence in this house. I'm not used to it. It's all the velvet walls, I say. They stifle noise and make the silence seem bigger than it is. That's part of it, yes. Julia's voice is hoarse, as if she has either spent the last few days crying or hasn't spoken aloud in a while. Outside, the oak tree's leaves are slowly turning from green to yellow, and the grass that has long since died seems to have given up. Fall is arriving, even if it seems too warm for it. Julia brings a pitcher of iced sweet tea and plate of cut-up apples and peaches to the table. She pours everyone a glass with a slice of lemon, settling down on the bench across from us. She pushes some papers out of the way and leans on her elbows. Darling, I know that I said it on the phone, but I feel awful that you had to be the one here when she died. I should have come earlier, weeks ago even. You shouldn't have been alone. It wasn't a surprise. Julia clutches her glass of tea firmly in her left hand. Her right trembles on top of mine. We all knew it would happen. I just didn't think it had happened so soon. So soon after the diagnosis. I close my eyes briefly and fight back the urge to laugh. Cancer. That is what took our mother, of all things, something that she could have prevented, worded away, if she really wanted to do it. No, she wanted to die ever since the accident. It took us years to realize that's what it was, the cloud that hung around her since that day and never fully dissipated. Grief. A giving up of sorts, and I couldn't even blame her for it, for wanting to die even when she still had us, alive and breathing here, because there was a huge part of me that wanted to die too, that still wanted to die, just thinking about that day. We'll get through it, Isabel is telling Julia, and I want to reach across the table and grind my fingers into her bruises. Of course, she can get through it. She can get through anything, float above it all like a ray of sunshine. Doesn't she remember that Julia is the baby? That she grew up with a sharp pain of grief at her heels, but has never truly felt the loss because of us? Because we sheltered her from it all? For a second, it's as if we're all small again, crowded around the table as Mother cooks supper. Isabel's curls are wild, her energy palpable. Julia, just three years old, swinging her baby feet back and forth while I sit next to her on the bench. And the spot next to Isabel is deeply, starkly, hideously empty of violet, which was, and is, our first grief. No, we hid that from Julia quite well. Moved Violet's things out of her room faster than we all wanted to, but we didn't want to hear her keep asking when she was coming home. Eventually, and it only took a few months, really, she didn't ask anymore. I always assumed it's because her memory of Violet faded as she got older, and since we rarely talked about her, any half-remembered things would have gone away. If she truly remembers her at all, and not just as a picture on the mantel or a headstone underneath the tree that now houses our mother, then Julia is very good at hiding those feelings. It would have been harder for me, maybe, if mother had wanted a funeral, it seems so out of character to think about, but she was very adamant about that those last few times we spoke on the phone. She did not want a ceremony. She did not want a viewing. In fact, 
If she could have gotten her way, she would have been buried within hours of her death, but the coroners were not fast enough. She was buried the next morning, just yesterday, as I frantically drove from Salem. A last-minute plane ticket is much more than I can afford on a professor's salary, even though I live alone and have very little expenses. Isabel, by the looks of it, had also driven, but from New Orleans. She could have gotten here much earlier than me. In fact, even in time for Mother's burial. It's for Julia's sake that I ask her about it, I tell myself. It's been a good few minutes with unspoken tension, and this is a good question to ask, is it not? So, Isabel, I say, and tilt my head as she turns to look at me, her long hair swinging. What was holding you up from getting here earlier? Her green eyes flash. I'm assuming those trunks strewn about outside are yours, right? Same could be asked of you, she replies, and her voice is still bright fake, but there's a sharp edge. You never forget a family member's connotations and the tiny hidden barbs in the depths of their voice. Julia hand clenches mine, no longer shaking. Mary? New Orleans is about six hours away if you drive fast, which I know you do. Is there any reason that you couldn't have gotten here earlier, Isabel, for God's sake? For Julia's sake. I swear the bruises around Isabel's eye go even grayer. I came as soon as I could. And you, dear sister, could you not be bothered to catch a plane instead of take a leisurely road trip down the East Coast? I drove as fast as I could. Not all of us have rich boyfriends who can buy us plane tickets on a whim. My tone is light. If anyone else heard it, it may even come across as a sisterly jab. But not in this context, not in this house, and not with Isabel, the one closest to me in Birthline and the one who knows all of my secrets, good and bad. She is still the one person in this world who knows me better than anyone else. I wonder if I am the same for her. Look, Isabel says, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm not even here for you. I'm here for Julia. I know you are too. Let's agree to act like it, shall we? This whole time, Julia has been sitting silently, her eyes on the table. Even in adulthood, she is still the baby, our baby, the one that we all carried around like a china doll and led by the hand through the field down to the woods to play. She doesn't have an ounce of aggressiveness or anger in her, and I like to think that we played a part in shaping that. I can agree to that. I don't look at Isabel as I speak. My eyes are on the oak. Its branches seem heavier since I've last been here, more weighed down. Julia's voice is barely above a whisper. It'd be nice if, even just for one night, if we could all pretend it was old times before all of this happened. She sighs and takes her hand from mine. I look across the table at Isabel. I can tell what she's thinking without her having to say it. Her eyes speak volumes. We make a silent truce there for that evening, for Julia, for Mother. Of course we can do that, Jules. We'll have dinner in the parlor, like old times even, if you want. We can use the couches as tables. We could even sneak in the gentleman's room. Isabel's mouth twerks. But first... I need to get my trunks in here. I thought I could carry them in myself, but they're all too heavy. 
Julia makes to move, but I stop her. Hey, no moving. I can help. And that's how I find myself outside, alone with Isabel, struggling to lift a trunk. The cicadas are full orchestra in the trees. The sun is slowly beginning to set. It feels even more humid out here than it did when I arrived. I'd forgotten how warm the nights are in Georgia, how the air perpetually feels thick and heavy for most of the year. We end up on either side of the first trunk, with it banging against our knees. Isabel walks backwards up the porch steps as I maneuver the trunk. What did you pack in here? Your entire house? Cat and everything. So it looks like we're continuing the truce, even outside of Julia's presence. I packed probably more than I needed to. Yeah. You think? Isabel taps the front door open with her foot and we shuffle into the foyer. The ancient rug rumples with our stiff movement. Isabel guides us to the wall to the right side of the stairs and we carefully lower it to the ground. No way are we attempting to get it up the stairs. It takes a few more minutes of rug rumpling and sweating to hoist the other trunks inside the house. Isabel slumps to the floor next to the last one, breathing heavily. I clutch my hair into a ponytail and wish for a cool breeze on my neck. Half of the weight, if you can believe it, are the trunks themselves, Isabel says. They're absolutely impractical. Maybe so, but I like them. Older things always fascinated you, I say, as Julia walks in from the kitchen, still clutching her glass of tea. We'd left the front door open, and she goes to shut it, wanders back, and plops on the first stair. Are you camping in the hall tonight, dear sister? Isabel laughs. Yes, we'll make a fort out of pillows and old sheets. We can't move those things up the stairs, I say, ignoring memories of when we actually did make a fort. But it was in the gentleman's room, not the foyer. Those velvet walls absorbed countless giggles and dares and secrets over the years. It's as if the house still keeps them close to its chest, waiting until we are vulnerable before unleashing them amongst us. I'll bring things from the trunks and then carry them up last. Isabel slowly gets to her feet, leaning on the banister. In fact, I'll start doing that right now. I desperately need a shower, and going to bed sounds lovely. Oh, says Julia, but I thought we'd all go see Mother together first before we did all of that. A shiver runs through me. I'm not ready to see my mother's grave, fresh as it is, with dirt raked over it like dirty snow. To be completely honest, I don't want to see it at all, ever. That would mean that she's gone, truly gone, and I don't want to face that. In my mind, since I stepped through the door, I've half pretended that she was just upstairs, taking a nap, and would come down at any moment to hug me and Isabel and to press her hands to the side of my face and smile, and smile that all of her girls were under one roof again. Oh, darling, Isabel is rummaging through the first trunk that we brought in. There's loads of grays and whites and blacks and teal clothes all jumbled up, clothes that look much too expensive to be packed so carelessly but I do not say so. Truths, remember? I couldn't possibly face it, not tonight. I'm here for you, of course, but I just can't go see it right now. Her voice wavers a bit. I don't want to see her like that. I'll go with you, 
I say as Isabel snorts. I want to see her. Can they tell that I am lying through my teeth? Surely. I'm only doing this for Julia, who had to go through all of these past few months of mother getting weaker and weaker. I wouldn't even be here if not for Julia. I would have never come to see my mother's grave. It reminds me too much of Violet's. I'm sure the same thing is running through Isabel's mind. Julia doesn't remember that day when we placed the headstone in the woods. There was no coffin because there was no body. Mother barely got out of bed before and after that. I was surprised that she wanted to have this headstone even, this ritual that was so cold and permanent. It seemed very out of character because she never, not that I saw at least, visited Violet's grave. It was and is, after all, Violet's grave, even if her body was never removed from the lake that summer. I should say that none of us ever went near that lake again, never stepped foot in its unforgiving waters, but that would be a lie. Isabel brushes past Julia up the stairs, murmuring something about one of us getting the casserole out of the oven before the house burns down, the creak of the old floorboards as she walks above us. She's going to her old room. I wonder if it's still made up in the same way as it was when she was a teenager. I wonder if my room is still the same. Julia and I migrate to the kitchen where I take the bubbling casserole out of the oven. It's a funeral casserole if I've ever seen one, with buttered Ritz crackers on top. My mouth waters. It's been hours since I stopped for a McDonald's biscuit somewhere in West Virginia. Isabel had told us not to wait for her, so I scooped out steaming portions of chicken casserole and fixed it on a plate with green beans, no doubt from another well-intentioned neighbor, and a couple of biscuits that Julia must have made sometime in the past few days. We sit in silence for a while and eat. Julia had shoved the papers that were scattered on the table earlier to one side, so we take shelter at the opposite end. A feeble spark of curiosity about the papers flares up, and just as quickly dies away. I recognize my mother's handwriting on one of the sheets, though it's too far away for me to properly read it. I don't want to think about what it could be right now or what conversations Isabel and I will need to have with each other and with Julia in the next few days. It would be so much easier to sort out everything while I'm here, but I only packed a few changes of clothing on purpose. I have no intention of staying longer than I want to, of getting trapped in this house again, like one of our secrets whispered in the fort so many years ago. They can have it all, for all I care. I don't want the memories, and I don't want the property or the house. None of it. Julia can have it. Isabel can have it. I've made a life for myself in Salem, a small life, but one of my own. Teaching colonial history at Salem State University keeps me calm, keeps me happy. I have a few close friends in the history department, and we go out for drinks or for dinner every few weeks or so. I've even gone out on a few dates. They haven't led anywhere. To be honest, nothing would work out anyways, not in the long term. Once you're 30, everyone seems to be dating seriously for marriage or for something like that, but with another name. That's not for me. I have Oliver to come home to at night, and he comes to the door like clockwork, meowing like mad. Sarah agreed to take care of him while I was gone, but only for a few days, as she's going on a cruise with her girlfriend this weekend. That's why I need to go back to Salem soon. Midterms are coming up, and Oliver will starve without me. 
What would he do without me coming home each night? I glance at Julia, who's eating normally, no picking at the chicken or pushing the biscuit back and forth. She seems lost in her own world, too. I've forgotten how companionable silence felt. Everyone in Salem that I see, even Sarah, continuously fills the silence with chatter. If it's not about their latest research projects or article that got published, it's personal details about their lives. Who's getting married? Who's having a baby? The latest show on Netflix, a conversation that I can occasionally chime in. It seems so petty now that I'm back here in this house that I didn't expect to see for such a long time. Now that our mother is dead and Isabel and I are in the same house and actually speaking semi-civilly to one another. It's all unreal. Truthfully, I don't know how I spend my evening hours at home after the grading is done and the laundry put away. What I do when I'm not wandering the shops on Saturday mornings, trying to fill my hours before I can sleep again, then wake up again, then go back to sleep. Then it's Monday and I teach. I don't know what I do. There's a black fog over that area of my life, something that seems sinister and empty. Would I have stayed if that summer had never happened? If Violet had not drowned? If Isabel and I had not stopped speaking to each other? I don't know. I do know that I would have been happy here, cooking dinners with Julia on long summer nights that seemed to stretch forever, drinking strawberry wine out in the fields and laughing at the stories that Isabel would tell us about the constellations. Mother taught us all of the constellations when we were younger and about astrology, even though she said it was just a bunch of fluff. Would mother had not died so quickly, so suddenly, if we had all been here with her? Would she have gotten sick at all? I hope that Julia doesn't notice the tears streaming down my face right now. I couldn't have stopped them, even if I had tried. <laughs>